Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review and also author of the brand new book, Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, let's dive right into the good martini. This is one we've been hoping to read for a number of years now, and it's finally here. Julian Assange, says ABC News, was charged Thursday in an 18-count superseding indictment for his role in orchestrating the 2010 WikiLeaks disclosures, including charges that accuse him of violating the Espionage Act. According to the Justice Department, the new charges from a federal grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia allege that Assange's actions risk serious harm to the United States national security to the benefit of our adversaries. The charges include an allegation of conspiracy between Assange and Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, to obtain, receive, and disclose national defense information in violation of the Espionage Act, a rare act by prosecutors against an individual who never served inside government. According to John Cohen, former acting deputy undersecretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, who now works at ABC News, quote, based on WikiLeaks activities, For the last decade and a half, this superseding indictment isn't surprising. And while it's not surprising, it is disturbing. Uh, Assange's lawyers say he's being prosecuted for being a journalist. And I've never seen that word used more in quotes in my life. So, uh, Jim, a lot of people who don't like Julian Assange because they think he helped Donald Trump are going to be celebrating this. But this has nothing to do with that. This has to do with him compromising U.S. national security and our very sensitive sources in sensitive parts of the world during a time of war. Yeah. By the way, for everyone who's uh, listening to this, it's a shame it's not a video podcast, because if you had been, you would have seen Greg actually strained two ligaments in his fingers because he was making air quotes so adamantly <laughs> uh, around the word journalist. Yeah, but see, there, this way, I could see the concern uh, about this application, but I guess the question comes down to, is Julian Assange a journalist? And you look at what WikiLeaks was doing. I mean, if you, you know, read about um, eh, you know, something on National Review about uh, Supreme Court confirmation fights, you notice we don't put up every document <laughs> It came before the Senate Judiciary Committee. You can go to the Senate Judiciary Committee website and go through them if you like, but we don't just say, here, readers, boom, and just dump a whole bunch of documents <laughs> on you. Um, I remember having this conversation in Austria, observing that like part of being a journalist is you go through your information and you try to present it to your readers, your listeners, your viewers, and sort out, this is what's important about it. Here's the headline, right? Here's what you need to know most. Going back to the, the kind of the, the formation of uh, depending on how you want to define it, modern journalism. Uh, it came from the Telegraph and the whole idea of what they teach you in journalism school about the inverted pyramid. Put the most important stuff up top. Your, your, your lead paragraph is supposed to have the who, what, when, why, and where. And then as you go through the paragraph by paragraph, the information is supposed to be less important. And the reason they did that is because at any point, the Telegraph lines could be broken or cut and you wanted to get the most important information through first. And that's how kind of this culture of journalism does nothing julian assange does fits in that world by that and part of it is because wikileaks doesn't you know you look at what they do they don't really write articles they don't really you know go through things and say okay this is what we've decided it um and now here's the thing i'll, I'll be perfectly honest there was some part i actually went through and read the indictment yesterday when i saw people saying oh my goodness this is a serious threat to the first amendment i can see when you decide to say you know willfully causing and attempting to cause such materials to be communicated, delivered, and transmitted to persons not entitled to receive them. 
technically a lot of journalists on the national security beat, uh, any of them who've ever reported anything that involved classified information, technically they're doing that. And if, uh, you know, there's a small voice in the back of my head that worries about whether this becomes a more complicated legal case on a guy that really should be a slam dunk on this sort of thing by going into these waters. But by and large, I think the argument comes down to it's not prosecuting the Associated Press uh, or any well-established, reliable, trustworthy journalism institution. And the, the indictment also says very specifically, this endangered people's lives. Um, and my suspicion is that the counts involving that will be an easier, easier case to win than some of the other counts. And there are 17 counts there. But again, I think, you know, look, maybe this was something, this is a long overdue discussion and make the argument, what Julian Assange did isn't journalism. What it is, is much closer to espionage. And by putting every document up online without regard for the consequences, but without regard to the risks of human life, now you're outside the realm of journalism. Now you're much more in the, in the realm of doing something, which is not really about informing the public, not about making a um, discussion of public issues better or more informed, what you're really trying to do is just louse up the United States government and endanger people's lives. And, you know, I, I think the government's got, on, on some of these counts, the government has a very strong case and I think a very good chance of conviction. Other ones, it may be getting into murkier waters. And I think it's also a reminder that Manning should still be in prison. These are very serious crimes. Manning was a member of the armed forces at the time, absolutely knew what the code of conduct ought to have been, clearly tried to conceal the crimes, uh, got convicted to, what was it, 30-some years in prison, and then the sentence was commuted by President Obama, I'm pretty sure just because Manning now identifies as a different gender, but uh, I, I can't prove that. But uh, Jim, either way, Manning still should be in prison. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are not a lot of people who betray their country and then get a big photo shoot in Vogue. <laughs> That's right. I mean, they're sure. I just, it's not like I'm saying I want to see more of that. <laughs> I to stand up. But you know, then again, you know, Avenatti got a glamorous photo shoot in Vogue. <laughs> it's true. So did, so did Beto now that oh, it was Vanity Fair. <laughs> Somebody was arguing about whether Annie Leibovitz was turning into the political equivalent of the Madden curse. <laughs> hey, I finally found a group of candidates I'd vote for Beto out of. Actually, I think, wow, actually, because there's Beto, there's Manning, there's Avenatti. Well, that's a, that's a really ominous sign for the next Star Wars movie. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And let's go across the pond to jolly old England where political turmoil continues. If you go back to 2016, three things happened that year that pretty much no one thought would actually happen. First and foremost, the Cubs winning the World Series, uh, Donald Trump being elected president of the United States, and Brexit actually passing. Every poll said that had no chance. All the talking heads on British television, and we told you yesterday what talking heads are worth, and all the uh, experts, all the politicians assumed that uh, this was going to flop and the Brits were going to stay in the EU. David Cameron staked his whole political career on it. Brexit was approved. David Cameron's out. Theresa May's in, which gave her the job of trying to finagle an actual piece of legislation to chart a course for Brexit, which I don't think she was ever actually in favor of. But uh, she's now out or will be in a couple of weeks because she has tried a number of times to pass a Brexit deal. It didn't get done. She's got a lot of Tories who think she's not really doing what the the public asked her to do, and there's lots of labor people, of course, who won't vote for it because they don't want to leave at all. So here's Theresa May uh, outside of Number 10 Downing Street explaining her decision, starting with her respect for the voters. I feel as certain today as I did three years ago that in a democracy, if you give people a choice, you have a duty to implement what they decide. I have done my best to do that. I have done everything I can to convince MPs to back that deal. 
Sadly, I have not been able to do so. I tried three times. It is now clear to me that it is in the best interests of the country for a new Prime Minister to lead that effort. So I am today announcing that I will resign as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party on Friday the 7th of June so that a successor can be chosen. All right, Jim, this is bad for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, British politics are pretty much in chaos over this, and the Conservative Party has not done a very good job of uh, forging a path forward here. Uh, secondly, as, as mentioned earlier, uh, Theresa May could be accused of trying to half Brexit in a number of ways by trying to maintain stronger ties to the EU than a lot of people would have liked. But now we're headed towards new elections, which means uh, if the Tories stay in power, you get Boris Johnson, who's got the unpredictability and the hair of Donald Trump, or uh, the raging anti-Semite and uh, crazy socialist Jeremy Corbyn for the Labour Party. So good luck, UK. Yeah, um, as I listen to that, it's, there are some of my colleagues, uh, John O'Sullivan, some other folks at National Review, who are, are very tough on Theresa May. They're very underwhelmed by her performance. Feel like she's bobbled this just about every step of the way. I feel a certain amount of sympathy because, look, you look back to uh, to David Cameron. The British Conservative Party had a situation in which the rank and file, by and large, loved the idea of Brexit. And you could argue about whether you want to call it the establishment, whether you want to call it the the elites, you know. But there was there was a chunk of the party that was actually not in favor of Brexit, that felt like it was going to be an economic loser, uh, that on balance it was a benefit to the country, um, and things like that. And so what Cameron, I remember, you know, thinking very well of David Cameron when he resigned for saying, like, look, we put this before the country, we had promised to put this referendum. I was not in support of the side that won the referendum. You should have a leader who believes in this as you go forward. Um, and it struck me as, you know, the right thing to do. And I you know, salute him for it takes a lot to step voluntarily step away from a position of leadership. Um, and that's kind of what Theresa May is doing now, although I think it's safe to say that Theresa May has basically exhausted every option. I joke that when you see on Twitter, you know, Brexit heading towards key parliament vote uh, or chaos surrounding uh, UK after Brexit vote fails in parliament. These are kind of evergreen tweets. Uh, we've seen them over and over again every couple of months. And what's deeply frustrating is that this current makeup of Parliament doesn't have enough votes to support any of the various proposals to move forward with Brexit, the hard Brexit, the soft Brexit, the long-term Brexit. I feel like I'm saying breakfast. Um, you know, the, the eggs breakfast, you know, all, all these different options. But they also have enough votes for staying. <laughs> and, you know, oh, by the way, the Labor Party has some pro-Brexit folks in it and some, pro, uh, some anti-Brexit. Uh, folks in it. It kind of scrambles the usual, uh, I guess what we would call partisan lines over there. So it's this, they're, they're kind of stuck in neutral. There's really, you know, not enough votes to move forward in this direction. Uh, but it won the referendum. You occasionally hear people saying, well, maybe we should have another one, but that sounds kind of like a do-over or a revote. Um, and have, you know, a lot of folks who would, who had advocated for Brexit would say, wait a second, you're doing a revote, but we haven't really tried Brexit yet. We've just said that implementing it has been you know, this endlessly, you know, series of negotiations and complicated plans and things like that. So, uh, look, having another election may be the best option. Uh, if Corbyn won, it would genuinely be a disaster because, like, we, we, we say, oh, my goodness, can you believe AOC is a socialist and Bernie Sanders is a socialist? <sighs> Corbyn's a communist. Corbyn is, like, you know, effusively pro-Soviet Union uh, and the good old days and red diaper baby and, and all that kind of stuff friends with all kinds of uh, uh, shady and savory characters around the world. I mean, pretty openly, explicitly anti-American uh, in his worldview. So he would be a disaster for U.S.-U.K. relations. Also, I think just a general disaster for the United Kingdom as, as a whole. 
Uh, Boris Johnson, boy, you know, he's been mayor of London. Um, there are times people have, uh, I, I think that the, the one word that comes to mind when you think of Boris Johnson is unpredictable. Um, he is a member of the Conservative Party. There are times he's been vehemently pro-American uh, and, you know, exactly the kind of leader we like to see over there. There are also times where I believe he was, you know, uh, a little friendlier and more effusive in his praise of Barack Obama than you and I would have chosen, uh, Greg. And so I think, you know, and also I think just generally he's um, he's got a bit of the, I don't know, I don't say, you know, carnival barker is the right term, but you know, he's definitely entertaining. He's a very lively personality. He's something of a provocateur. Uh, to use a term from across the channel. And so he'd be a very interesting guy. I don't think he would be a particularly reassuring figure because of his unpredictability. Some might say erratic. Um, he's got kind of a likable charisma for everything that he's done in his career. But, um, you know, going from Theresa May to Boris Johnson is not really calming things down. Um, and I think it would make the process of Brexit perhaps even more unpredictable. So uh, as you said, Greg, Good luck, United Kingdom. <laughs> a Trump-Boris Johnson relationship, or even a press conference, uh, would they be two peas in a pod, or are they so much alike that it could be problematic? You know, it's, you know there can only be one in the spotlight, right? <laughs> it's very easy to see them getting along in the beginning, and then at some point, um, and, you know, Johnson in the past has made various comments of saying, you know, Trump's a breath of fresh air and things like that. Um, but I think that uh, in the end, these are two big egos, that I think would eventually end up with some sort of tension. But, you know, look, we're never going to get back to that classic cop buddy movie relationship we had between Bush and Blair, Greg. <laughs> you know, one's the, one's the wild and crazy cowboy, one's the stiff upper lip, you know, by the book, Brit. You know, you could, I, I would love to see that cop movie, the Bush and Blair. <laughs> Cleaning up the town. Yo, Blair, for those who are old enough to remember, <laughs> with his lunch in his mouth. That was, that was fun. I'm sneak up on Merkel so she doesn't see me. <laughs> He was giving Angela Merkel of uh, shoulder rubs, I believe, at one point. That was so, right. They, they came up behind her and freaked her out. Because, you know, <laughs> much more, much not, more. Not a great moment in American diplomacy. <laughs> much more casual atmosphere, at least in his mind, uh, back at that time. All right, let's go to our crazy martini now, Jim. And the name Naomi Wolf hasn't been in the headlines in a while, but she's been around for quite a while, a number of decades. In fact, she is a fairly prominent feminist. She's written a number of books. She speaks out uh, for strong feminist, liberal feminist positions, I would clarify. Uh, she was uh, briefly famous during the 2000 campaign because she was consulting with Al Gore on wearing earth tones, if I remember correctly, and making sure that he, he could uh, wear clothes that identified with the, whatever demographic he was trying to appeal to, because clearly Al Gore was just a natural, talented politician. So uh, Naomi Wolf has uh, written a new book called Outrages. The left, for some reason, is not pleased with the gains it's made on LGBT issues. So she's writing a book about how horrible things allegedly were a number of decades ago or even a couple of centuries ago. So she was on a British radio show with this guy named Matthew Street uh, talking about her book and how horrible it was that a lot of gay guys got executed back in the UK uh, in the 19th century. So here's her explanation of this, and uh, kudos to Matthew Street, who actually did his homework. I found, like, several dozen executions, uh, but that was, again, only looking at the um, Old Bailey records and the crime tables. Uh, several originally. dozen executions. Correct. And this corrects a misapprehension um, that is in every website that the last man was executed for sodomy in Britain in, in 1835. I don't, I don't think you're right about this. One of the cases that you look at that, that, that's salient in your report is that of Thomas Silver. 
it says um, teenagers were now convicted more often. Indeed, that year, uh, which is 1859, 14-year-old um, Thomas Silver was actually executed for committing sodomy. The boy was indicted for an unnatural offence, guilty, death recorded. This is the first time the phrase unnatural offence entered the Old Bailey records. Thomas Silver wasn't executed. Death recorded. I, I was really surprised by this, and I, I, I looked it up. Death recorded is, the, is what's in, I think, most of these cases that you've, uh, um, you've identified as executions. It doesn't mean that he was executed. It was a category that was created in 1823 that allowed judges to abstain from pronouncing a sentence of death on any capital convict whom they considered to be a fit subject for pardon. I don't think any of the executions you've identified here actually happened. Well, that's a really important thing to investigate. What is your What is your understanding of well, what death recorded means? Death recorded. This is also from. That, I've just read you the definition of it there from the Old Bailey website. But I've got here a newspaper report about Thomas Silver, and also something uh, from uh, from the prison records that that show the date of his discharge. The prisoner was found guilty, and sentence of death was recorded. Yeah. Ah, but see, but the, the jury next... recommended the prisoner to mercy on account of his youth. See, I think this. I think this is a kind of. When I found this, I didn't really know what to do with it because I think it is. I think it's quite a big problem with your argument. Also, it's the nature of the offence here. Thomas Silver committed an indecent assault on a six-year-old boy. Jim, there are book promotion interviews that go well. There are book promotion <laughs> interviews that don't go well. You've done a lot of book promotion interviews. I'm sure most of them have gone very well. What I'm very sure of is that you've never gone into an interview and found out that the premise of your book, or at least a big part of it, is based on bogus research. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm glad you played that that chunk, Greg, because first of all, I mean, every author's nightmare scenario. Although, again, this is why traditionally, when she says, "Well, that's something that needs to be investigated," <laughs> traditionally, Greg, you investigate the topic before writing the book, so that what you put in there is accurate and. When you keep saying people were executed, it doesn't turn out that legally it meant something totally different. And everything you, everybody you said got put to death, didn't get put to death, which is kind of the crux of your argument, what the book's all about. Um, first of all, also my kudos to the interviewer, because that is the most polite and gentle and, and just dignified vivisection of somebody's work I've ever seen. And you, know, he's, you can tell he's sympathetic. It's, I, I didn't quite know what to do with this. Um, it, it turns out everything in your book is false and you didn't look <laughs> up what the term means. So, uh, And I love everything like, huh. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. We've all made mistakes. Uh, this is a really big one. But I, then the other, I started like, wait, 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 I, I remember the name Naomi Wolf. Something of a famous feminist author. And I went back and I checked. Greg, this is, uh, I did not get a chance to put this in the morning jolt. I thought of this and looked at it afterwards. So I'm, I'm looking at the National Institute of Health. All right, this is an abstract, a research that they did. Quote, it was 2004, uh, a critical appraisal of the anorexia statistics in The Beauty Myth by a feminist writer, Naomi Wolf. When she wrote about an epidemic of anorexia in Western countries and points out that these statistics she discussed are still cited in the media and in scientific publications. Uh, however, this, this uh, researcher went back and reviewed the statistics she was citing and found out that when compared to the relevant, I remember one of the things she had said was like that a million and a half American women die of anorexia each year. That seems high. It seems really, <laughs> really high. 
Uh, so then he goes through and he reviews and he concludes that 18 of the 23 statistics she cites are inaccurate and overdone. And this is the sentence that just you know, really jumps out at you. On average, a statistic on anorexia by Naomi Wolf should be divided by eight to get close to the real figure. Implications of this finding are discussed. Um, so in a way, Greg, I suppose getting stuff totally wrong might be a very key part of the Naomi Wolf brand identity. Um, you know, you read the book and you get really concerned about something. And then like a month or then later on, you figure, oh, okay, don't worry. It wasn't really, it wasn't really happening. Don't worry about that. So, yeah. Yeah. There you go. This is the ultimate Emily Latella moment, right? Your entire, <laughs> hey, you know what I wrote the whole book about? Never mind. Uh, <laughs> these people were not actually put to death. And oh, by the way, the guy who I cited as a case of injustice yeah, kind of I was a child abuser. <laughs> you know, like at that point, you're like, yeah, maybe they, should, maybe they should have killed that guy. He's a real SOB. So. Wow. Wow. So don't buy Naomi Wolf's book. Go out and buy Between Two Scorpions by Jim Garrity. How's that for a transition? Mine's a novel, but like everything I refer to in there, I describe the settings and historical events and stuff. That's actually all true. I debated putting footnotes in there. And this is why we put in footnotes this fall. Oh, you think she was a uh, a sheep in wolf's clothing? Ah, very good. Very good. All right. Happy Memorial Day, everybody. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to anyone who's ever worn the uniform of the United States. We especially pause this weekend and really every day to uh, thank those who have given the full measure of devotion to our country and their families, military families, as well as those who have served our country. For Jim Garrity of National Review, I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great weekend. We're off Monday, and uh, join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.